Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Welcome to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriting. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer. For more information, please check out nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. My guest today for episode 43 is Steve Wynn, who started out in the early 80s in the Dream Syndicate, and you are hearing right now, Tell Me When It's Over, their big song from 1982's The Days Before Wine and Roses, and he's gone on to release a crapload of solo albums, different projects, including very recently one called The Baseball Project with members of R.E.M., We're going to be focusing on his solo material, starting with Resolution from 2010. The album is called Northern Aggression, credited to Steve Wynn and the Miracle 3. Then we'll go to Punching Holes in the Sky, a 2008 tune from his Crossing Dragon Bridge. We'll also discuss There Will Come a Day from 2001's Here Come the Miracles. And we'll conclude by listening to I'm Not Listening which you can get on a 2013 solo release called Sketches in Spain, but was originally released on an album credited to Smackdab in 2007. For more information, please see stevewin.net. Hey, Mark. How you doing? Good. Is it still a good time? It is a good time, and I'm about 95% in voice and strength. That's good. It was a one whacked out cold. You sound like you do, at least... It seems like your many vocal performances, just because I've been dipping back to your oldest stuff, range in hoarseness. So even you with a cold is sort of within the range of what I feel like I've heard before. Okay, good, good. <laughs> yeah, know. That's a good way of putting it. I've, I've been far worse when distributed far more widely. So yeah, that makes sense. So I really appreciate you coming on here. Oh yeah, and I, I, I love the concept. I think it's great. And I really, I like the songs you chose. I would have been fine to talk about Tell Me When It's Over, and that's what you always hear, the more obvious ones, but it's fun choosing something that's not the typical ones that people would choose. It was a little difficult to choose just three songs to talk about because I feel like your style, there's a certain economy in your songwriting. Since you write so many songs, then often a particular song is not, I'm going to throw everything in the kitchen sink in here. It's, I'm going to develop this one little idea here. So tell me when it's over, which I'll have played a little bit of uh, for the intro. I mean, it's that intro guitar riff. That's like 30% of the song right there. Is that That's what's catchy about that. So this is what rock music sort of is about. This should not be surprising. You know, I feel like to really appreciate your catalog, you can't just listen to three songs. You know, you gotta, you gotta, whereas some folks are single oriented, I feel like. Do you think more in, in terms of albums than singles? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't think in terms of singles much at all. I mean, that's not, you know, where I'm coming from. I'm not a chart artist or a, you know, hit making machine. I'm just a, I like albums. I, I like, even now as it's becoming less and less an important form and, you know, less the, you know, people hear music now as a single download or, you know, on a, on a, still on the radio or randomly here and there or hear albums, God forbid, out of sequence, you know, which, which is horrible. But, you know, <laughs> but I, I still might, the way I cut my teeth on loving music was, the 35 to 45 minute art form of, of a two-sided thing, which had a, a start, a middle, and an end. And I can't stop thinking that way. And I, I know it's the same for a lot of people my age or from, you know, who got into music at the same time. You just can't break away from that. And I think it's a great way to hear music. I think there's a beauty of the last song on side one and what that tells you 
and, and where that leaves you and the way that makes you feel when you turn the record over. The great thing now is, as it turns out, strangely enough, is that vinyl is as important or more important than CDs. So kind of a, it's a revenge of the two-sided 45-minute statement. Yeah, I've just sort of recently gotten over thinking of album sequencing in terms of you know, you can still think of the first three songs in the way that you were before, that you kind of have whatever the opening statement is. And then, well, number three is probably, you know, what would be the single or kind of the deepest, you know, think of in terms of finale. But then because it's not two sides of five songs each, then you've just got on a CD, it's more a giant mass of less differentiated material that you have to kind of right. just treat like a set list in terms of the ebb and flow and things rather than thinking, wow, I can really punch on the third song and then the fourth song can be a little weird and then the fifth have to be something sort of dramatic. And of course, the fifth of side one has to be probably less dramatic than the fifth of side two and how the two, just like you're saying, the, the opening song of side two as opposed to side one, that those are sort of different kinds of statements big difference, right? And the thing is, you know, when it comes to songwriting, because I've always liked that form, a lot of my songs I've written just as songs, individual freestanding. I got inspired one day when I was walking down the street and I came home and wrote a song. Just plenty of those. But a lot of songs I've written were written in the course of making a record and the course of writing for a record where I thought, well, I've got everything here except that one piece I need. I need that long brooding song I want to put on side two. I need that. You know, so, I, so a lot of things I've written were written for a place on a record. The same way if you're making a movie, you know, you don't just write a whole bunch of scenes and hope they fall together. Some people might, but you imagine a whole series of sequences fitting as one whole. I've always seen record making that way. I really normally write for a project. Well, let's use that to talk about our first song, Resolution, which is not very typical as an opening song of this 2010 album, Northern Aggression, credited to Steve Wynn and the Miracle 3. So it seems like as a guy who is, I don't want to call you a rhythm guitarist, but it seems like you always, <laughs> you tend to have a straight-up lead player that you can at least play off of. And I, I see Jason Victor on this is also in the Reformed Dream Syndicate. Yeah, he's great. I mean, Jason Jason's an amazing guitarist, and people are finding that out more all the time. He's been out there right now on tour with Alejandro Escovedo, blowing people away, and he's just, you know, I've been a fan of his since the time we first started playing together, which was, was at a point he had never toured or made a record. We've been playing together for 15 years and have a really good chemistry and connection and telepathy and can finish each other's thoughts on guitar, at least, and in, in other ways, too. Which is the third record credited to that trio of the three. It's funny. I mean, it is the third record as Steve Wynn the Miracle 3. The first one, in a way, before that would be Here Come the Miracles that I made in 2000 with Linda Pittman and Dave DeCastro, who are the rhythm section for The Miracle mm -hmm. 3. When Jason joined the band after that record came out, I just was tired of going on tour and calling myself Steve Wynn because I figured people might not know if, if it was a solo guy or a guy in a band. Or are you the financial giant? Apparently, when I look you up on YouTube, there's... Oh, no, no, please don't <laughs> go there. <laughs> a lot of people in life had the misfortune of having the same name as somebody else, and then this kind of can be confusing. But um, having the same name as somebody who's so reprehensible and vile <laughs> as he is, it makes it even worse. So you're now Dream Syndicate's Steve Wynn. That is now your name. Yeah, so... So yes, I am me and I'm proud to be me. But the thing is, I like bands. I like the somebody and the somebody. It's, you know, I mean, I, I cut my teeth on being in a band, being in the Dream Syndicate. I never, I never went solo because I needed more ego stroking. So after Here Come the Miracles came out and I had this really great band unit, which as it turns out is like the band I've had now for 15 years, so the longest I've had any band, I wanted to give it a name. And my thought was, well, this record's called Here Come the Miracles. And what I'll do is on each record, I'll change the name of the band to suit that record. 
but the name stuck. It just felt good. So 15 years later, we're still the Miracle 3. And Northern Aggression was actually the last record we, we made together. That's five years ago. Yikes. Although I've also found that now with Spotify, that the records I make made as Mark Lint and the somethings, I'm just releasing as just Mark Lint, just because I want them findable in one place. That's a thing. Purely a cataloging issue. Too bad. Yes, everybody has to be concerned with that kind of thing, and we're all scraping to get on the radar. But at the same time, you know, you just do what you do. And if you have a million different projects, there are logistical problems with that, but it's fun too. I mean, I, I'm saying that because I've definitely, at this point, have so many different things I've done. I've made now 30 records, and there are the solo ones, there are the ones with the Miracle 3, there's the baseball project, there's Danny and Dusty, there's Gutterball, the Dream Syndicate. I made a couple records in Spain um, under Smack Dab that came out. All these different things, and I, I'm really proud of all of them. And when it comes time to explain it or define what I've done, it's a big, sprawling mess. And that's okay. At the end of the day, the sprawling mess is okay. It's a bunch of little sonars going out there in every direction. If you look at someone like, say, Bruce Springsteen or Bob Dylan or Paul Simon or the Rolling Stones, and you say, here's their catalog, and it's just long line that goes you know, beautifully in a straight, easy line, that's great. I didn't do it that way. So what it means is people find me from different angles all the time. And that's cool, too. All right. Well, let's talk about resolution. So tell me about this record, this song. I had read on your website that this was not one of the first ones that was brought up for the record. This was one of the other guys. It was your uh, bassist saying, we got to play that song in D. Oh, you saw that. Yeah, that's right. When we made the album that became Northern Aggression, we, Dave and Jason and Linda and I went down to Richmond, Virginia, to a studio I liked down there. And I like it, the studio, actually the same studio where I made one of the, the first record with Gutterball, um, the second record with Danny and Dusty, and the new Dream Syndicate record. It's a, it's a great studio for, among other reasons, because it's kind of in the country, and the studio and the house you stay in is about 20 feet apart, and you sort of immerse yourself in the experience. And I had the idea of going out with the Miracle 3, and kind of writing a lot of it on the spot. I thought, you know, everybody in the band's very creative, has writing chops, has ideas of what's cool. And knowing we could record day and night and take breaks or go for graveyard shift sessions or whatever, let's go down and see what happens. So we went down with a bunch of half-written songs. I think on that record, there might be three or four songs which were complete when I went down there, and the rest I left a lot of holes waiting to be filled. And I'd been sending demos to the band. Here's a bunch of little fragments, here's things that could develop to something else. And we went down and recorded a ton of stuff. I mean, a lot of it hasn't come out and probably never will. But it was just, let's see what happens. And I think we were right near the end of the session, right near the end with much more than we needed. And as you said, Dave DeCastro remembered this demo. He has a good mind for keeping track on things that might have fallen by the wayside. And he brought up that song. And I had to think about the one he was talking about when he says that, oh, yeah, it's great. let's try that. And we went and recorded it, and I think we got it on the second take, maybe. And it had no words, but I had to go out and sing a, a placeholder vocal, just to have something to work with. So I really stood out there at the microphone with a notepad in front of me and wrote the words in about five minutes, just, you know, as fast as I could write them to have something to sing. And that became the lyric and the vocal. And I really wouldn't change anything about it. It's easy to say that and say, well, there you go. I'm lazy. I'll take whatever it is. It means nothing. But actually, sometimes the things you write quickly are much better than the ones you labor over.
Yes, the lyrics are very impressionistic, I would say, sort of vaguely sinister. Is it candy from an open sore or is it can't be? Candy from an open sore. Okay. Just behind yeah. the velvet yeah. door. Just behind the open door. Yeah. The op- okay, here we go. I'm I like kidding. the velvet door. Actually, that would work. <laughs> I don't know where wrong lyrics come from when I find them on the internet. <laughs> if it's... Oh, but they're out there for sure. <laughs> yeah, It's like the old journalistic thing. Make sure you have two sources for everything, for lyrics on the internet especially. I'd had the chorus line for a long time, Everything That Rises Must Resolve, which is kind of a play on this Flannery O'Connor story, Everything That Rises Must Converge. So a little nod to that. But I liked Everything That Rises Must Resolve because that applies to a lot of things. You know, It applies to political situations, social situations, romance, and even music. Although <laughs> it's not always the case, but you know, there's that resolution to something where you build tension and then you let it resolve. So I just like that idea. Just like this song where you go on and then you have a beautiful major... No, there's no nice major chord to resolve this. It's just feedback. It's feedback and it's droned. And it's funny you said that. I think you said something like that was an unusual choice for an opener or a different choice. I can't remember what you said. Well, just that that it's long. It sort of seems like the last song on a side or the second to last song or something like that. You know, it's a little more... But you've done that enough times where you've had the long thing that's near the end. So this sort of makes sense. And just how crazy it gets, this sort of sonic youth guitars. I mean, I could see how this might have built out of something live, but then surely you must have overdubbed some of these things at the end, this cacophony, or were you using some kind of echo pedal or stuff that it makes it sounds like four or five guitars there? To some extent, yeah, you're right. But at the same time, Jason has a way of playing where he sounds like four or five guitars at the same time. I don't know how he does that, but so a lot of that's just Jason going through Uh whatever he does. But if I have one thing that I kind of fall back on pretty often is that opening records with songs in D built around some kind of riff, you know, and then tell me when it's over on the first record is like that. Uh, the opening song on the new Dream Snicket record is like that. And the ones in between, it's comforting. I, I really, I mean, I've always been drawn to drone and repetition. It's something that just is very appealing to me, comforting to me. It's fun to play. It's almost like, you know, by setting something that's so simple and hypnotic, that's where the band shows its personality. For, for me, if I throw a million chords and tight, intricate 
arrangements at a band. It can be great, but also I'm sort of forcing the band to bend itself to what I've constructed. I like the endless droning on a D, which I do on this song, which, which you know is on Halloween, is on a lot of things I've done. So it's a drop D, I assume. So you have your E string. This one is a drop D. I don't okay. always do that, but this one is, is a drop D. It just—it's beautiful to me. It's just there's few things I'd rather hear than just a band playing over one chord for hours. And I know that's not for everybody. I have to remember that sometimes because I can just listen to that for days. Well, and then it seems that it takes a certain technique then to actually go to a chorus, like how you rev up to actually leaving the drone. The drone seems to have a magnetism of its own, as you say, so that it could just be the whole song. And then when something a little more cheery happens, like this chorus here, I guess the way you set it up is just, okay, we're just having a little power chord. We actually just get the riff out there before there's even more lyrics. It doesn't go right into everything it rises must resolve. It goes right into, dun, dun, like into sort of something the Who might do. Just There is a chord movement in the verse, but it's kind of still kind of droning. It's a movement over the D. You know, when you've been playing the same chord for three minutes and go to a second chord or a second and third chord, it feels like you've just turned the world upside down. It's a great feeling. Yeah. That's one of the cool things about droning is and minimalism is once you throw a change in there, it's just exciting as hell. One thing I was really influenced by, not as a kid, but actually about 15 years ago, was I got obsessed by um, finding live versions of Eight Miles High by the Birds. Ah. Not, yeah, not from when they first recorded the song, but from late, the later lineups. When they had better musicians, yes. When they had Gene Parsons, and and especially who's amazing, and, and Skip Batten. And, well, Clarence White is yeah, one of my favorites. I think Clarence White, that's and Gene, Par- Gene Parsons and Clarence White, right, yeah. And Gene Parsons on, on drums, but Clarence White, right. And, he was, and those versions with that band where they would just play the opening chord for 10 minutes. It's like, God, they would just kind of go in every direction, you know, I guess like kind of the Coltrane kind of thing. And they would then kick into the, the song at, at some point And you just feel like, oh my God, I've just, you know, seen an epiphany here. I've just like, my mind blew open. And I love that. It's an exciting thing. So I kind of started using that one a lot. Well, and then the other two techniques that you have here, things dropping out and then everything's stopping. So you've got two places. Like It's very jarring at three minutes in where just everything drops out. In fact, your guitar is panned very hard left, so there's just you and no drums and bass, and your vocal has gone underwater. You know, There's some new filter on it. So that really something very arresting about that. What the effect is on the voice there. While I was singing it, I just at that point for no reason cupped my hands over my mouth and sang it through my closed hands. So it's nothing that can be undone. That's just the way. Nothing that can be undone, and nothing you have to buy, you know, online or in the store. <laughs> that was my effect. That was my plug-in. At least like this, I just said, "Well, let's see what happens." I can't do it live. I'm playing guitar, but um, it's a good effect. Just have uh, on your harmonica next stand have like a, a cloth yeah maybe <laughs> I have a crew guy or an audience member come up and do it for me That's sing it through a kazoo <laughs> that'll work and then at the end when everything actually stops after the double chorus there before the cacophony solo and then when it comes back in you've got this what demon sleigh bells sort of thing it's just funny how you know a simple percussion thing can just make it that much more sinister must well, Linda's great at percussion. She thinks of percussion as part of her 
overall drum part. For her, percussion isn't just a sweetener. It's kind of part of the, the puzzle. So that was definitely the way she thinks. It's not the first time she's used sleigh bills. She's a big fan of those. It's one of my favorite album openers I've ever had, just because just a lot of times, as you kind of said earlier, the album opener is meant to be sort of a shorter, easy way in, kind of a, a seduction, a kind of a way of just quickly shaking hands and saying, glad to meet you, I hope you enjoyed the ride. This was just kind of a, a trial by fire. When you're through with that, you could just be done if you wanted to be, or you're on our turf and ready to take the ride with us. Well, let's turn left to... A middle song in the album slightly before this, but very different orchestration, different sound. Punching Holes in the Sky is the song from Crossing Dragon Bridge 2008, just two years earlier than this, but was a very largely solo effort. I know you had gone to Slovenia, very much off your home turf, and we're in Chris Ekman's home studio here. And there's a little orchestra stuff, though. I know that was added after the fact. Was that sort of based on you did one finger keyboard stuff and it was duplicated? Or was that you had just finished your, it's pretty much you and your guitar with a giant reverb on your voice. This is with a classical, I assume? Yep. Okay. Which is not your normal (laughs) rig, obviously. Totally different playing style than normal. It was my first rig. That's how we all started, right? My first guitar was an Iowa string. Well, that's what I started with and I basically never got over it. I mean... (laughs) So, so I, I still do. Really? Is, is that your main? When I'm not playing bass in the band, but yeah, when it's a thing where I'm writing all the songs and, and yeah, I mostly play classical, have never been, well, because I started an upright bass, so I just was never comfortable with a pick, really. So oh, it's only been yeah, recently right. that I've, you know, thrown 12 string in and for songs here and there, but the classical is the one that is most melded to my body. And it's exactly for the reason I can see this is just based on a finger picking pattern that I can just see you sitting there and doing as a form of meditation for hours. Right, exactly. If I have to pick up guitar and do a finger-picking pattern, that's the one that, you know, I guess, I guess everybody has certain go-to things when they're playing any instrument, but definitely on a nylon string acoustic guitar, it might be a certain thing you automatically go to, and that's the one for me. If you ask me how, you know, which fingers I'm using and, and in what pattern, I couldn't even tell you. I'd have to look down while I'm doing it. If I was sitting with a, a nylon string guitar on my lap while watching a baseball game or sitting in the dark, you know, with a glass of wine, whatever, that's what the fingers would do. So the right hand on that one came pretty easy, and the left hand I had to think about. Peel away the morning sky Place it in a jar I'll collect it when I die Sliding from a star And down through the clouds Strip away the mystery Lash out at the night I can change the storyline Cannot make it right But I'll try The words come drifting by But I cannot reply Punching holes in the sky Punching holes in the sky
You don't have to feel afraid. The rage is all for show. I can always draw the line, but sometimes it's so hard to know. Words come drifting by. But I cannot reply, punching holes in the sky, punching holes in the sky. Tell me more about how this one came about. You've got your meditative pattern. And then, so where did the lyrics come in in the process here? Well, we were talking earlier about writing songs for specific records for the project. That whole album was a case of that where I've been wanting to work with Chris Ekman for a long time. He's an old friend from way back. And he moved to Slovenia in, I guess, 2001. He married a woman there and started doing a lot of soundtrack work and a lot of things with strings I was, I was, I was really liking. And it was just a matter of getting our schedules together because he's very busy and I'm very busy. And we finally managed to map out a, a month together in 2007. So I think once I knew we were going to make a record together, I really had no songs for the session, nothing designated for that. And I kind of wrote a record just imagining what it would be like to make a record in Slovenia. And I've been there a few times. I mean, it feels in former Yugoslavia and has you know, a little bit of that Eastern feeling, but it's also kind of like a slightly smaller, reduced, more rustic version of Vienna. It's a kind of an old Europe feeling. Beautiful place, beautiful river that runs through. Um, so I knew a little bit about it, but I hadn't spent that much time there. But I really just kind of envisioned what a Slovenian record would sound like. So, you know, a lot of minor key songs, a lot of kind of um, contemplative, melancholy. They love minor chords melancholy down in, in Southern Europe. It, I feel very much at home in a lot of when I tour Europe, which is why I probably tour there so much, in that in the U.S., a minor chord song is seen as a dark aberration to the, the pop form, the brooding, troublesome brother to the, 
peppy, happy, upbeat major chord song. In Europe, that's the thing. Give me a minor chord, and you know, so much of European music is built around that. So I, it was easy to write for that kind of thing. And I, all the songs of the record are like that. And I knew I would have strings on them. And punching holes in the sky was just a case as something something I'm sure you know. Like when you get a new guitar, it becomes your mode of writing for a while. And I had recently gotten a new nylon string guitar from somebody from when I was down in Spain. And uh, it was kind of a flamenco guitar of nylons. And I started writing on that. So that had, had a little of that flamenco feel, to be honest. It's, it's got a bit of a Leonard Cohen kind of thing going, like something off of Songs of Love and Hate, maybe. The lyrics just kind of came pretty quickly again. The phrase, punching holes in the sky, I don't know where that came from, but it, but I like it. It, it feels very real. That's, you know, that feeling of just being frustrated and angry and at the same time, just inarticulate, where you just can't define the way to express your rage. And it's kind of something that is as invisible as just trying to blast through this invisible barrier is all you can do. Yeah, it sounded like there was something more definite than for the previous song. Verse three, you don't have to feel afraid. The rage is all for show. I can always draw the line. But sometimes it's so hard to know. Is the rage related to the performer persona or is this sort of referring to external to music things or is that even a clear distinction wow that's that's a hard one i find something when you're trying to be expressive in music then it's always a stretch when you then enter into these culturally established forms like even just a rock power chord like it's not exactly the same as the barbaric yop or whatever it is that you would in the absence of any musical training used to express your anger or something so you're always vent in in the same way that having this little acoustic guitar repetitive finger picking thing is a little it's an aid to meditation you know that you enter into it's just like if you had a cool synth sound that you just drone on or any, really any kind of drone on any instrument can be a similar sort of thing so that the interaction between the raw emotion prior to entering the music and the cultural form that is the thing you know it's you interacting with a physical and cultural thing that then creates this synthesis and so when i'm writing about I mean, I even had a whole band called the Fake Johnson Trio that was the point being that this is my, I'm doing manly rock stuff, <laughs> like, which is sort of a show. So in terms of the rage being a show here, that's kind of what that connoted to me, that like you summon up these things for the purposes of performing, but it can just, you know, unless you just got divorced and are coming off some horrible thing, the rage is just, it's a way of release. It's like exercise. It's like, it is for show. So it serves a function. It's not necessarily because you have rage. Yeah, that's true. It's also, I mean, a lot of, the, a lot of that song is mostly just about being inarticulate, just being able to not being able to express the thing you're trying to get to, mm -hmm. that frustration that feeling of the limitation in the wall around you, which, you know, can come in from songwriting. You try to get to something, and you just can't get there. That's the worst frustration. It can, it's in daily life, daily conversation, just where you feel this barrier between the emotion inside and the way it comes out. You know, we all feel that. That's a really frustrating thing. And was this one related to death, just because I, you bring that up in the first verse here? It can be, but it's mostly just about just not being able to, not being, and... It's funny you say that because at the time I was making the record, I had two different friends who were, who were dying and one who died while I was in Slovenia. And that weighs on a lot of the songs on the record. For me, and probably for most songwriters, you write certain things and you don't really understand them until a couple of years later. You know, that happens to me all the time. I'll write a song and I'll think, well, that feels good. And years down the line, I'll realize, well, yeah, of course, that's what I was saying. That was what I was going through. But at the time, you don't put that much thought into it. I think sometimes if you tried 
to think about it too much, try to get too analytical about what you're doing at the time, it would almost inhibit you. It would sort of handcuff you because then you'd be so... I think when I said earlier that sometimes the best songs come most quickly, like on Resolution, when that worked, is because once you start thinking about what you're trying to say and mapping it out and wanting to say it and, and analyzing it, it loses some of the power. And, sure. You know, I mean, sometimes the best lyrics, some of the ones I love most of my own and of other people's are ones where you look back and say, well, if I really thought about it, I never would have said that. That's so awkward or weird or naked or clunky. You know, I was doing a song for a Lou Reed tribute last week on his, what would have been his 75th birthday. And I sang um, rock and roll, which is a classic song and a great song. But if you look at the words that any lyricist with any amount of time, except I guess maybe Lou Reed, would not let that go. They're like things are repeated, things rhyme with themselves, words vary and just kind of strange ways. It's just, it's a strange lyric. He's got a lot of those where it's like, you know, like, wow, that's a strange choice to make. But it works because it just, it feels pure and right. And I think that's the thing with a lot of lyric writing is you just kind of, you get the burst, that emotion, that, that initial thing just gets you excited or I always say that if I write a song and it makes me cry, if I'm onto something, and that happens a lot, you write a, you write a lyric and just makes you feel something. It's, it's you know, it's therapy, it's analysis, it's kind of digging into somewhere deep. And on that song, I mean, I'm writing about that. I don't know if I was sitting down saying I'm going to write about songwriting or about expression, but it's what it is about. It's just trying to communicate, to connect, to reach something, and it's just you're almost there, you're not almost there, you're just a frustration of not being able to do it. I'm feeling something I should express, but instead I will play this repetitive finger-picking pattern that is as natural to me as my own skin. Like, that's an expression of sorts, but again, it's not actually expressing the particular thing that at that moment you kind of want to express. Since it's something that's so innate and, you know, you could have done that two years ago, it's not really reflective of the moment. In the same way that playing big power chords on electric guitar, that is expressive, but it's an exercise. You could have done at any point. It's not unique to this moment of expression. Right. It's funny, too, like when you co-write with somebody and, and you come up with a lyric and they put music behind it that is something you never would have done. And I, I don't do a lot of co-writing, but I have a bit. And, and that's happened sometimes where you think, wow, I never would have put that music there. And it kind of changes the song entirely. So sometimes we usually when you're writing songs yourself, the music is there to kind of naturally fit with your words, just to kind of be the, the Greek choir behind your statement. Well, so let's talk about that in terms of the string part here again. So my first question, you know, Chris, you said is the string arranger, but did he come up with those lines or were those things you more or less sang at him and then he elaborated on? No, that's all Chris. He's okay. great. There's a, a different one on the record um, called Bring the Magic that actually was my arrangement, but that one was all Chris and he was fantastic. He's just so good at that. I think he writes them on a keyboard and then transcribes them. And what he was doing at the time, which was really just fantastic is um he would my actually i think he still does this he, he was doing all his string recordings in the czech republic about an hour outside of prague mainly because it's so cheap there's so many great players up there and he could go up there for one day go into a studio with a ap string section with his arrangements and of course unlike rock bands where you hope you catch the magic or get it on take 47 or whatever these guys get it on the first take that's, sure. what, that's what their job is so he goes he could go up there with four songs, you know, record the whole thing by lunch, fix things up and go back home. And that's what he did. I think, I think now actually, now he doesn't even go up there anymore. He, now he does it by Skype from Slovenia because you can. 
Well, sure. If you, and if you've demoed the whole thing on keyboard and here's the stuff written out, like <laughs> there's no thinking involved. Just do that. And they can see him and he can see them. So it's so different than recording a rock band. And I wasn't there for the string session. So I, it was really exciting when he did it and emailed it to me and I got to hear it. It's fantastic. I mean, God, it's just, I hadn't thought about it much before, but how you would combine the words that are saying what they're saying about communication and, and inability with the music, which is very kind of, staying out of its way and as you say very familiar and hypnotic with this very bold string section which is just kind of you know aggressive in a way it really just so so strong it seems like it's influenced by film string parts rather than orchestral string parts just in that you know having a violin sound like people say oh that what a great string section you have well it was actually just violins playing in unison that's all it was but that's right. kind of what people but the reason I thought you might have arranged it is just because it is so spare in the same way. I know they're not all, all the, some of the other arrangements on this album are not quite like this, but that it's just really that single note thing. So that again, when it finally divides into parallel, what I, I don't know if it's parallel octaves, there's a, there's a harmony that is introduced about three minutes in that just is wonderful because it's not been doing that, that it felt like maybe he was playing this on a really good keyboard with one finger up until that point. And then, oh, now there's two fingers. Words come drifting by. I see what you're saying, right? It could be that kind of thing. And then just, yeah, the way he responds to you at the end of the song, when you're repeating the peel away the morning sky and he has that resolution, those the stringers are going down a little bit and then they end together. Peel away the morning sky Peel away the morning sky Peel away the morning sky Yeah, I'm surprised that was not part of the original song because it's just so organically connected. He really, he channeled the whole thing so well. For me, it really was just a song, one guitar, one voice in a lonely, quiet, dark room somewhere. And then the thing is, we left it mostly that way. I don't think I ever even considered putting a band behind it or, or drums or bass. I think I meant for it to be like that. Was it your choice to have such a huge reverb that sort of is an instrument in itself on your voice that that really fills up the space? I like it. It was mixed by a guy named Tucker Martin in Portland. He's great. He's on a ton of amazing records, including a lot of Chris's records, but the Decemberists, so that was all him. And that's what makes it not sound to me like Leonard Cohen or somebody like that, which is a much more spare, you're sitting exactly. right in front of me with your guitar, that adding that reverb just by itself, even though it's a purely in post, changes the character radically. It does. And it's, it's funny, I mean, out of the 30 records I've made, there are some which with the thing you're hoping for, the thing you you can't control it no matter how hard you work or how hard you prepare. But that thing where you go to make a record and every decision is the right one and everything happens the perfect way and it happens easily and naturally and everybody brings what they bring to the record and the perfect amount and just the right way. And that doesn't happen every time. And I've had maybe five records out of the 30 where I could say it happened from start to finish. And this is one of them. I think Days of Wine and Roses was like that. I think Here Come the Miracles. Well, let's transition to that. Yeah. So, I mean, a few of those I had that were like that. And, you know, and yet Crossing Dragon Bridge and as, you, as we're going next and Here Come the Miracles are two of the ones where 
wouldn't change a thing and just, you know, every pull of the slot machine came up jackpot. Yeah, so I was, as I had communicated with you as we were arranging this, I discovered you through the cutout bin. Let me say, it was your first two solo albums, and I was the kind of guy, I've been always fascinated, you know, when I was in the late 80s and whatever, looking in that things that are in the cutout bin, somebody thought this would be the biggest thing in the world and made a million copies of it. But then, you know, for whatever reason, I'm not a social Darwinist. I don't think the fact that something doesn't become a giant hit means there's anything wrong with it. But somebody thought, so your first two soul albums, that's, that's how I heard those. And then, you know, had to then seek out your subsequent stuff and, you know, followed through. I don't know that I heard fluorescent right away, but I heard uh, melting in the dark and up through the uh, midnight album. And I think that was a, a round where I'd, I'd maybe heard a little bit of dragon bridge at some point, but once things turned internet and I wasn't like going to the used CD stores yeah. <laughs> all the time, it, like it just kind of changed what I was discovering when. So I had not heard this Here Comes the Miracles double album, 2001, or really any of the stuff since then, you know, more than a little bit, you know, a little bit of a tick, tick, tick and uh, so the baseball project and stuff like that. But there's just so much I had completely overlooked this one in particular. And it's yeah, such a satisfying album. So what what made this? I know this is the one that you have the most. It would got a best rock alternative award. If I am Indie Awards in two, for 2001, there's you know heaps of good reviews of this on your site. What what made this one? Did I read somewhere that like this whole thing came together in 10 days? Is that the session itself was just remarkably easy and painless and fun. And, and one thing I always point out about that record, we recorded 19 songs and everything we recorded, we used and they all fit and felt great. And even down to one of my favorite examples of how easily that session went at the end of the 10th day in the studio, about two in the morning, I had the list of songs in front of me. And just cause I, I like sequencing records as I'm going along. I just sat down and said, this looks like a double album. And I wrote down a sequence in about 10 minutes, and that's what I stuck with. And, you know, I'm sure as you know, and anybody who makes records knows, sometimes a sequence can take you forever, and it can just never feel right and drive you nuts. This one came just like that. I just sat there and wrote it down. No crossouts, nothing. There it was. And it was that kind of record. I mean, now having said that, as easily as the recording went and the sequencing and the and the mixing even, and even the album package, everything about it went, you know, no second guessing, no second thought, just like the first thought, best thought, and that's the way it went. Everything leading up to it was a big soul-searching mess. I had done the record My Midnight and toured on that record for months, I think like three or four months straight all around the world, and came back and just felt this point that, you know, that you feel where I don't know what to do next. I don't want to follow what I've been doing, what I have been doing because I'm kind of bored with it and I don't want to retreat. I'm not sure. I just really, I was almost 40 years old and I just could not figure out what the rest was going to look like. If I was still going to make records, if who knows, I just had, I really was just feeling at a loss and I just started writing like all the time. And this was, as opposed to what I said earlier, this was just case I just wrote a lot of songs, just kept writing and must have written 30 or 40 songs. And a lot of them came out eventually in different places. Some are for the Spanish project I did with a pretty obscure record, but Steve went in Australia, Blonde Momento, and I came out over there. And some came out on a collection called the E-Music Collection, which I was doing at the same time, actually. This is a, for parenthetically, I was writing a song a month and recording it and putting it online immediately as, as kind of a challenge to myself at a point where that was not common way of Boise music, just a, pretty much was doing scattershot, whatever, looking for something that made sense. And I, at one point, I talked to my friend Hal Gelb of Giant Sand, and I told him kind of the frustration I was having. And he said, well, 
you know, he lives in Tucson. He said, there's a studio here in town that I record at all the time. And the guy who runs the studio is an interesting guy to work with and a good catalyst for experimenting. You might like it here. I said, sold. I'll try it. So I went and flew out there with my band, despite having no shortage of good studios here on the East Coast. But we flew out to Tucson just to see what happened. And it was the magic connection. And went out there with a bunch of mismatched songs. Again, counter to what I was saying earlier, songs that didn't necessarily belong together, just a bunch of odds and ends. And threw them all against the wall to see what would happen. They all worked. All right. Any introductory words for this particular one? This is There Will Come a Day. This is the closing track. It's spiritual. It's kind of nasty for a spiritual, but... It's kind of nasty for a spiritual, definitely. <laughs> it's a feel-good anthem. When I saw that you chose that one, and I didn't want to say anything about it, but I cannot remember writing it. Most songs I've written, I can say, here's, you know, for example, one thing is, I don't know if it's true with everybody, but a lot of songs I write, I can say, well, I was trying to write this kind of thing or that kind of thing, or this is the record I was listening to, or this is the new guitar pedal I got, or the new guitar I got, or it's usually there's some kind of external catalyst. This one, I cannot even remember where in the world that one came from. And maybe that there's something good about that, but I have no story about it. But I, I do know that, like we were saying, it's a nasty spiritual night. And it's among the more guileless, transparent, uplifting songs I've ever written. But I don't do positive that often. I don't do just, not by design. I believe in you. I, on the Sweetness and Light album, you had a little bit of that. Yes, although even those songs were kind of couched by kind of a little bit of, you know, sardonic stuff going uh. on. But yeah, that is, a, that is probably the one more cheerful records are done. Definitely musically, but look at the lyrics on that record. There's still a little definitely darkness. This one starts off kind of from a dark place and wishing bad things on people. You know, it does go to a very positive place. And it's funny that's a song that really always seems to resonate with my fans, with audiences, and with people in a very direct way because it's something that people feel, and it's something I'm sure people are feeling now. You know, whatever side of the political spectrum you're on, or or anything at this point, is this hope that despite things being dark, somehow they'll all work out that the bad people will get punished and the good people, you know, the meek shall inherit the earth and all of that. It seems to be is maybe more relevant now than ever. It's a good ending to a record. It's a very uplifting, hopeful, maybe Pollyannic, but um, it's a very real thing. As 
people sometimes will Everyone who'd done me wrong And those who would wrong me still But as I made my wishes And as I cast my spells I stopped myself and I said a prayer And said these words to myself Yes, musically, on second or third listen, it sounded very much like the band to me. You know, like you're doing a Dylan-ish vocal, just even in the oh. way that you're singing it. And then you've got just the fact you've got piano and organ that are taking a prominent place. And only one, well, I've got, you got a, a second lead guitar doing the sort of slide stuff that comes in later. But for the most part, it's just one guitar. So that's what it spoke to me, that there's Richard Manuel joining you from the grave on this one. That's a good thing to hear. That's a good template. You know, the funny thing is, we were talking about earlier about having played, usually surrounding myself with, or attaching myself to a really good lead guitarist, you know, like, like Jason, like, like Paul Cutler or Paul Percota with the Dream Syndicate or, or, you know, all the people I've played with over the years. I think the reason this record works is because there was no second guitarist on the recording, which I almost never do. Um, I almost always go in the studio with two guitars, bass and drums, maybe a keyboard. This one, I was the only guitarist and left for a lot of space and left for, 
a lot of room for the keyboard player, Chris Kakavis, who I yeah. play forever. He gave him a lot of room to to shape the songs on keyboards, which is a great thing about that album. So this song, I think guitar is just there to support what he's doing. He He's definitely being Garth and, and Richard Manuel at the same time, which, which is great. My favorite thing in the song, the thing that, you know, just, and you always have things that, as a music fan, which we all are, you want to try from a record you love, and once you get it, it's a thrill. And on this song, my thing is the B section of the verse, when it goes from the B minor to the C, the crazy horse, powder finger background vocals, the ooze. I love that. You know, I just kind of heard it in my head and had never done anything like that on a record. And we sort of broke down what it would take to make that work. And I think that's Dave and Linda singing there. And when we tried it, it just was magic. You still get that sometimes. And you try not, you know, you don't always want to be too, show your cards or being too much of a geeky fan, but sometimes you just got to try those things and it's fun to do them. And like, oh, damn, that's a beautiful ooh right there. God, that's, that's the way Neil and Danny Witten would have done it. Well, and then so that eventually turns into a giant choir where you are backed off of the lead mic or somehow blended better with the chorus there. So was that a bunch of overdubs of the same four people or was that get everybody standing around the studio to come in and, and sing, direct an actual choir? Get everybody in there. Every, exactly. Everybody in there at the same time, just singing and feeling it. And, you know, you know, yeah, I think, I think at the very end you hear a bottle clinking and stuff like that. It's just a, just kind of a party thing. It really is. It's a funny song because I play this song all the time. I, my solo shows with bands and whenever I sing it, I always feel like, I'm singing a song that can bring people together and make people feel better and, and sort of a, a nice salve to the wound of everything that came before. And then as I, when I had that thought in my head that that's what I'm doing, I start singing the words and realize, God, this is a dark song. Like a lot of gospel music, you kind of go through a lot of darkness to get to the light. The darkness is in past tense. The darkness, I was... That's condemning. Right. I was, I found myself on my knees wishing pain and suffering on my enemies. Oh, how low I was, and now I am risen. You know, within now. Praise the Lord, I saw the light, yeah. Made my wishes, cast my spells. You don't have too many songs that I can think of that reference gospel in this way. You know, that's such a prominent part of the old tradition that you like to hearken back to this way and that, but it seldom comes out explicitly. What is your take on that? Has that, has that always been just a minor, you know, I know when you voyage into country music, it's it's always a very reverent. It's not like the Rolling Stones or the, the Beatles doing a joke country song. Like it's a more earnest take than right. that. And similarly here, this take on gospel, it's not, it's not a parody. It's an actual thing. But the fact that you were kind of so good at this for this song, but I don't hear it given the volume of other work that you've done. I don't hear it on 10 other songs. It seems strange to me. I should do it more often. I like it. That's a good point. <laughs> Have a whole spirituals album. It's funny because anybody who meets me who's heard my music first, people will say, I didn't expect you to be friendly, nice, to ever smile. You know, I, mean, it's, I, I enjoy writing about darker things more because it comes easier. And also it's part of the therapeutic thing of songwriting to get those things out there. You know, even the happiest person has got the blues 5% of the time. And to draw on that, it feels good. But there's a, you know, the real joy in being able to express transcending of something. When you said I was trying to think of songs where I've done that, but one song where I actually did do that, which is probably my most successful song, is Amphetamine by yeah. the Miracle 3. And that's a song, it's a very emotional and very soulful song that comes, again, from a dark place and trying to, there's a lot of sadness and darkness in that song, but the ultimate thing is breaking through. 
And it's not surprising that's a song that people connect to as well. So I should do it more often. Shouldn't be afraid. Don't be, don't be afraid of the light. So it wasn't until after I'd picked the songs that I delved into the greatest hits album, which, you know, admittedly, what is 2004 or something? You know, it's it's before the Northern Aggression album, before uh, right. Crossing Dragon Bridge. And I noticed, yeah, Amphetamine was the first one on that. And I was like, well, I picked Resolution. That's sort of equivalent type of song in terms of the drive and the... Uh, but so what you're saying about that is surprising to me because what you just said does not describe Resolution, for instance. No, the three songs you picked out, I mean, Resolution and Punching Holes in the Sky, start in the darkness and stay there. You know, I mean, there aren't giant epiphanies in either one. I mean, Resolution it just gives a little nice little platitude that maybe you know things will resolve, but um, I don't think that's meant to be a any kind of reassurance. There will come a day, and Amphetamine again, for example, do kind of say, you know what, you're going to make it through. I shouldn't be so stingy with that either. Maybe the next record will be a, no, not the Dream Syndicate record, but maybe the one after that will be um, a little more uplifting. Yeah, so we don't get to hear any, I know the Dream Syndicate record will be mastered by the time this comes out. Yes, yes. Right, we're mastering in a couple of weeks. I'm just really happy with it. I can't wait for it to come out. And it really, to me, it's, it's everything that I loved about the band that I think that probably people loved about the band and something new at the same time. I think it's just a natural progression from where we left off to where we are now. It's just an exciting record. And I think it's funny, spending this much time talking about lyrics, maybe in a way that I would not normally do that, you don't always know what a record's about till again, till years later. So I'm not sure what to say the new Dream Syndicate record's about, but I think a lot of it's about just finding yourself at a certain place in time and wondering how you got there and what you're going to do with that, which is a very fitting thing for a band that hasn't make a re- made a record in 30 years to write about. And is it a big difference in terms of the how collaborative it is? Like, was Dream Syndicate just the band that you had at the time, but it was still pretty much you calling the shots in the same way that you do on your solo albums? Or was it more, you know, because you didn't have that established track record, you have to be more democratic? I mean, yes and no on that. Because as actually, as a songwriter, usually I do write the songs and bring them to the band, whether it was the Dream Syndicate or my solo projects. So in that way, yeah, as far as the songwriter side of things, yeah, I'm the band leader, the boss, whatever. I got to say, when I make records, whether it's with the Dream Syndicate or with most of my solo bands or with people I've worked with, I kind of open it up to them. I don't I don't actually go into a recording session and say, here's how it's going to be. We're going to play it like this. So this record with the Dream Syndicate, just like all the others, is very collaborative once we got in the studio. The songs here are mine. There's one co-write with Jason and one co-write with Kendra Smith, which I'm really excited about um, as she sings. But for the most part, they're my songs interpreted by a band, which I happen to be the guitarist in. But it sounds like you do that with all of your lineups, that you take advantage of the fact that there are people there. Like, there will come a day, I mean, definitely resolution. So these are all, for the most part, recorded the basic tracks as a live band, right? For the most part, yeah. The only record I made that wasn't recorded as a live band was Crossing Dragon Bridge. That was the only one that was pieced together. Otherwise, every single record is me in a room with people interpreting what I wrote. And like I say, I try my best to go in and just approach the songs as a member of the band playing the songs and, and working with them. Of course, there's going to be certain things where you're going to be there and say, no, no, that's not how I heard the song. And hopefully not too often. Yeah, like you have a couple places in, I think it was in, in There Will Come a Day. You know, like, where does the big drum riff come in? You're more or less trying, at least, to leave the intuitions about those particular moments to the players and to the chemistry of the moment. And, you know, it being a band. I like it more that way. And I always play with really great people. I mean, Linda's an amazing drummer, and she has a great sense of where things work in the song and how to play drums to 
enhance the song, not just be a backbeat or here's my drum part, irregardless of what I just heard. She plays, she's a songwriter's drummer. So, you know, I'm sure you could talk to people I play with and they very likely say differently or say, well, it's not 100% true, but I really do try to let people do what they do best and do naturally. So let's move toward our final selection that we're just going to introduce and, and say goodbye. So this is one of your straight-up collaborations. It was not clear to me seeing that. In fact, I thought I was listening to Sketches in Spain album, 2013. I thought, okay, I'm going to now get up on you know one of the most recent things you've done. And then I'm reading, you know, listening more. Like, wait a second, these are the, some of the same songs that are on the 2000 collaboration album that you mentioned. Okay, so the second, the one that we're listening to is the, it's the opening track of the two albums that are packaged together now, but was originally called Smack Dab. The album, the band was called Smack Dab, right? It wasn't even like a, didn't even have your name originally in 2007 when it was released. So, you know, a more thoroughly collaborative thing. I'm glad you chose this one. I really like this one a lot. This is one of my favorite songs that is kind of largely unknown by, well, the universe and then by, even by my fans. But I, I really like it. It actually, it began as a song for my midnight. It was demoed that far back. And we recorded it, not for the session, but for a demo session. And it sort of hung around for a while. And there's a studio in Spain near Cadiz in Andalusia down in the southwest where I love to work with a guy named Paco Loco. I would say he's like the Steve Albini of Spain. He's he's the the indie producer who just made thousands of records. He's just always working and worked with a lot of, over 20, 30 years, worked with everybody over there. And he and I really hit it off. We love working together. And around 2004, was starting a label and wanted me and Linda to come over and do a single. He said, look, why don't you come over, spend a week with me in the studio. The studio is also his home and a great place to hang out. Spent a week here, we'll write and record a couple of songs and have a little vacation. We can't, went over there. And as people who love playing music end up doing, we spent the whole week just writing songs. We wrote an entire album. Most of the songs on the album were written right there for the session. But while we were there, Linda said, what about that song from back, you know, back uh, in 98 or 99 that we did, I'm Not Listening? That, that might be really good. So we kind of we took it and retooled it a little bit, wrote a few different words, fixed it up, and had it for this record. So did it have that bass-heavy disco thing in its original form, or was that... No, it didn't. It was much more kind of a square box, clunky little rock song. So that was a big difference. One of the fun things about Smack Dad, that record that I really am proud of, is I'm the bass player on the record. And I love playing bass, but I'd never played on a record huh. before. So that was a blast. And I'm not a bad bass player. I can kind of, you know, I can kind of groove along pretty well. That's me and Linda just playing this kind of disco, post-punk kind of thing together. I really love the the stylistic variation on that album. It's sort of the exception. You know, I've, I've said that you seem a very economical arranger. Even when there are solos of instruments, it's not about the solo, it's about the song. It's It makes it so, because there's not that much that's often very flashy, that means that you kind of have to listen to it more. I think it's a, it makes it a little harder to get on first listen, which is unfortunate. But uh, this is an exception. You know, this song in particular is hugely flashy, and you've got other stuff on here. You've got, well, I think it's Free Love that almost sounds like a Big Star Third thing in terms of the, the amount of weird noise that's going on. And uh, yeah, I don't know if flashy means more immediately appealing to the average listener, but it's much less tightly constrained. I think due to the fact that most of the record wasn't written, that it was done quickly, and on top of all that, I actually started the session with a really bad case of food poisoning over there, which started me off in a very vulnerable state. I was like, you know, really almost like in a kind of a psychedelic haze for the first two days. 
In fact, the song Quarantine is there's no hidden story there. It, it, it's all true. I that's I was sick and and shut off from everybody else for a couple of days. But it kind of between jet lag, sick, new collaborations, whatever it takes. I think it's good to be in a kind of unsure, vulnerable, not 100% confident state when you make a record. It's good to be broken. It's good to have doubt. It's good to let things fall into place in the moment. And if you roll the dice and come up sevens when you do that, you're going to be in a good place and probably better than you would have been if you would have come in 100% prepared with diligent arrangements. Well, all right. Well, thank you so much again. I, we, could, we could keep going on for days, but let's let them hear the song. I really enjoyed this. It's such a great show, and I appreciate all the, the time and um, you know listening you put into this. Have a great day. You too, Mark. Good talking to you. Say what you want on my behalf, I won't 
Probably one of my favorite interviews that I've done so far. Steve really seemed to understand the format, really has great material, likes to wax theoretical about lyric writing and that kind of stuff. Again, check him out at stevewin.net. And please subscribe to the podcast at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. You'll see while you're there that we are part of the Partially Examined Life Podcast Network. Hope you check out the Partially Examined Life Philosophy Podcast, as well as the Five Fic discussions on philosophical fiction. Now, Nakedly Examined Music continues to need your help. And I'm not even asking for money. I'm just asking you to help promote this thing. Go leave a nice rating or review on the iTunes store if you use iTunes. Go to our Facebook page and share that around. Share this episode around. We've got a lot of great guests coming up. If you might like to be one or you have recommendations, please email me at mark at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And thank you so much for listening. I love having these conversations. I love that there are people that are interested to hearing this much in depth, hearing some new music they haven't heard before. So keep on musicking. Until next time, this is Mark Lindsay Meyer signing off. <laughs>